think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 18 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 19th episode. Birthday edition. Birthday edition, yes. Uh, I came back from Seattle and then uh, it was my birthday, so we didn't record yesterday or Sunday because I was tired and it was my birthday. Anyway. I don't uh, want your excuses. We're recording today um, and there's actually been, been like, it's been, been busy, eh? There's yeah, a lot been, of, a lot of mean, news. From like of... BC to the news today, there have been a lot of things oh, yeah, going Christ, on. Dude, talk... Yeah, anyway. So basically, really, the, the, I don't remember who said this, but there's a famous saying about history that's one damn thing after another, and like, it's very true some days. It certainly feels that way. Uh, I guess we'll start off with the BC election really quickly, because this is not sure. our beat. You should listen to Politicoast, whose beat this is. Uh, as things stand, the Liberals won 43 seats, one short of a majority. The NDP won 41, and the Greens won three. So the, the Greens get to play kingmaker in this situation. Maybe. Maybe, because the absentee ballots have not been counted yet. As well as judicial recounts. As well as judicial recounts. And that may flip some writings. Courtney Comox is as close right now as nine uh, nine, nine votes, votes apart. Nine which votes short of a majority government, mind not, you, which is really something. Nine votes short of majority, and that's going to be judicial recounted. And then yeah. there's still the uh, absentee ballots to come in. And apparently, uh, a lot of them are anticipated to be military, yes. which is presuming to be liberal leaning. That so. said, Kevin Milligan did the work on, like, did, did brought the receipts, and he, he saw, yes, and he saw that, no, you don't think so? Finish, finish I your, will finish the sentence. Finish your statement, and then Kevin Milligan, it. who's an economist at, uh, at UBC, um, did an analysis of what happened the last couple of elections uh, for absentee ballots, and in that writing, um, NDP votes went up after the, the absentee ballots were counted. So, like, presuming that holds true, which, like, we can presume or not presume. Um, was it? Did he do it in that writing, or did he, did. he do he did it, it just writ large? He did it as a swing, but then he specifically did it for Coquitlam, Burke Mountain, which is another close one. Yeah, and then yeah, uh, Courtney Comox, and that's what he found. So. Okay, because I thought what I remember from reading his analysis is that he sort of didn't account for like the military base and like factors. Well, like it's that. because the the liberal candidate this time is a former commander of the military. Yes, base, which may affect things in ways that the like make it more yeah historical okay. trend analysis is as good as Just, your inclination that the historical trends will continue which they don't always so that that could be so right now we have really no idea what's going to happen either john horgan or christy clark could become premier so, so this has been analyzed to death yeah we don't want to spend too much time on it in fact we may have a guest in the next couple of weeks with whom we can discuss this so ho- we'll see. hopefully we'll see what i find uh what i find interesting about it nonetheless is say the liberals do get a majority and you have that one seat majority that's you got a speaker and an like inconvenient it's thin. majority yeah either your speaker is you know casting all sorts of tiebreakers or you're picking a speaker from the opposition and even then usually when i I don't i'm obviously less familiar with provincial legislatures but at least around ottawa there's sort of uh, an accounting done for the number of mps missing at any given time yeah exactly and when you have a comfortable majority you're able to have you know your ministers in Europe and some ministers here and some MPs homesick and you can still reasonably win votes. Yeah. From time to time, as happened earlier this year on the Air Canada vote, the opposition will sort of plot behind closed doors to 
have all their MPs there that day and try and make you miss one. Yeah. And sort of the whip's job is to keep sort of informal accounts of how many uh, MPs are in town and how many are going to be there for votes to make sure that you're always winning your yeah. votes. If you have a margin of one... Yeah. You're going to have like BC... Uh, you're going to have like NDP MLAs like setting up tents in their offices. like Yeah. Just, <laughs> rolling out a sleeping bag. Just the logistics for the staffers as well as the whip's office. Yeah. No matter which way it goes. Like even it's going to be razor thin no matter how you slice it. Even if the Greens come on board with the Liberals, it's like a, a margin of three is, yeah. or one way or the other. Like yeah. no matter who wins out of this, it's the margin is... So inconvenient. Yeah, so it'll be if you're like a, a you know if you like legislative hijinks, this is going to be your government to watch. It's going to be great. Doors wide open for yeah. hiding all your uh, MLAs in the office all o- overnight and then all storming up to vote the next morning, sort of thing. It's going to be good. Uh, moving on from BC because uh, we do want to save that for another day when when we have someone who like knows more about it and everything. Um, Ron Ambrose is retiring. Yeah, that was uh, surprise news that came out yesterday. Yeah, I was very surprised. Um, didn't see that one coming. I did not either. Yeah, so, what, like, I mean, my assumption is just that... How long has she been in politics? Like, some time. She's, I think, in multiple parliaments anyway, so, like, she's, yeah. she's been there for the better part of a decade, if not more. Yeah, she's been there a while. And, you know, she's she's been a very competent interim leader. She was a competent minister. I think perhaps she just thinks, like, this is a good time to get out, or as good a time as any. Yeah, sort of. Sort of what I've heard is that she'd been planning her exit for a little bit. Yeah. Um, this also helps indicate why she wasn't interested in like when they were doing the draft campaign. Mm-hmm. The draft campaign uh, for Rona to be Rana, rather. I yes. always, I always yeah. mess those That's up. That's okay. For Rana to be the uh, the full full time CBC leader. She was very demure about it. She was very much like, yeah. no. Also forbidden um, by the rules. Forbidden by the rules, but people tried to overturn it at the, oh, uh, at the, convention, at yes. the policy convention. Right. And she was having none of it. So okay. I think she telegraphed this a little bit. Um, so in the house today, they had their resi- uh, they the, had the tributes. Yeah, I was watching tributes, that. Uh, which was touching. It was uh, very nice. I think she said it best when she said, uh, if any of you new MPs are like in the room, and you're wondering how long you have to work here for, you know, the opposition and others to say nice things about you. You don't have to work here very long. You just have to quit. <laughs> That's actually really good. I thought that was a very clever line. Yes. Uh, there were good speeches done by Trudeau and Mulcair. Mulcair said, uh, remarked that she was his, fa- or sorry, she was his favorite conservative leader of all time. Um, so there's high praise all around. And I think that's sort of the general sentiment that uh, yeah. Rona leaves on. And she's going to the Wilson Center, or the Woodrow Wilson, I believe, Center for Canadian Studies or something along those lines in uh, Washington, D.C. So it should be a nice change of scenery. To be a trade fellow, which sounds like an awesome job. Yeah, softwood lumber agent behind enemy lines. (laughs) Sure. Basically. (laughs) I I was interested to see uh, the trade because sort of her portfolios have been less trade-related in the past. Yeah. Uh, Things like status of women and health. Um, but if she has a knack for trade, then so be it. Yeah, and it's just a hot button issue, and you know she's conservative. They all kind of live and breathe trade. So. Uh, yeah, everyone's got a little trade. Yeah. Okay, so Rana, congratulations. Uh, enjoy your retirement. Yeah. In politics, I guess not your like retirement retirement. I'm sure we'll see her again at yeah. some point. Uh, Jagmeet Singh has entered the NDP leadership race. A new challenger has appeared. A new <laughs> that he has. That he has. Um, and this is as good a time as any to say this. Uh, we can't talk about it. 
Why? Why not? Because I've got a is, new is job. Is the intern working on the campaign? No, unfortunately, yeah, the intern uh, would actually be very helpful. But no, I, I am working on a on a leadership campaign, so I don't want to talk about it because it seems kind of conflicty and. That's fair. Be- best best not to. I think we can pack that topic up and put it in a uh, in a big black box to be opened after the many moons from now. Yeah, so we'll we'll see. But yeah, uh, so yeah, unfortunately, that's gonna i mean it does kind of suck because it's like you know a pretty important like federal politico beat that people are interested in and we'd like to talk about it but yeah i figure it's probably best if we don't Main, so, mainstream media for you yeah apologies to our listeners about that but uh, that's the way she goes folks uh, i'm a young guy i need to need to pay my bills i need to keep the intern uh, knee deep in cat food they, uh, they paying you in toast yeah, <laughs> <laughs> toast and ramen noodles. Uh, avocado toast. Um, <laughs> that's why you'll never be able to afford a house. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that, that's sorry. <laughs> that's that's my apology in, in lieu of analysis. That's fine. I've already forgiven you. It's, it was your birthday wish. That's true. A- anything else uh, I want to talk about? We, we got an interview to roll, but uh... yeah. So we've got an interview, and then uh, it's with a uh, professor, Professor Tellier at uh, University of Ottawa. She's an expert in public finance, and we've been wanting to talk about uh, Bill C-44 for a while now. Yes, Bill C-44 is the Budget Implementation Bill, which includes a provision... Implementation Act. Implementation. Well, right now it is a bill, because it hasn't passed. Yeah, but its, it's title is the Budget Okay, whatever. Act. Anyway, they all... Anyway, whatever. <laughs> I'm gonna choose this as my hill to die on. Okay, you could. It's called go... the BIA, the Budget Implementation okay. Act. But until it receives royal assent, it's a bill. Not anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so what this does is it like every budget has this, or like usually several, is that it implements chunks of the budget, hence the name. Um, this one includes a provision to amend parts of the parliamentary budget officer's mandate and structure in ways that have been pretty controversial. So we'll roll that tape. So I'm here today with Professor Tellier at the University of Ottawa. Professor Tellier, could you tell me a little bit about your background? Yes, sure, with pleasure. Um, I've been teaching here for uh, now more than 15 years. Uh, My specialty, my my research focuses on uh, public finance and budgeting. Uh, I have a background in economics and in political science. I come from Quebec. I've done my PhD at Laval University. And now I'm in here a teacher in the public administration program at the School of Political Studies. And you were just testifying in the Senate earlier this week um, in regards to C44? Yes, I had the privilege. They called me like at the last minute to <laughs> testify. Uh, I knew already about the piece of legislation, so I was happy to give my two cents on, on that. And it was a very pleasant experience. So that's also why we're here today. So C44 is the Budget Implementation Act, uh, which is an omnibus piece of legislation that includes a lot of you know the standard budgeting measures as well as new spending. But in that legislation is also some very important changes to a institution of the Canadian, uh, of the Library of Parliament, but of the Canadian sort of government writ large, uh, which is the office. I always get this mixed up because its name is sort of counterintuitive. It's not the Parliamentary Budget Office. It's the Parliament 
Parliamentary Budget uh, Officer. There's no office, so <laughs> it's kind of... Uh, it's the office yes. of the Parliamentary Budget Officer. It doesn't even exist. Oh, uh, no? Nowhere, no, you don't see anywhere the word office of the Parliamentary Budget Officer. So it's only an officer because he was under the La supervisor of the laboratorian. Of the, yeah, okay, that makes sense, I guess. So could you tell me a little bit about the history of the Parliamentary Budget yes. Officer? Yes, sure. It's a new institution. It's the newest, I would say, the newest major innovation we had in Parliament in Canada. And so it was uh, first presented in 2006 with C2, maybe some remember that, the Accountability Act. So it was the first piece of legislation that the Conservative, the new elected Conservative uh, uh, presented and uh, adopted in Parliament. Uh, it was in the Conservative platform, so it was not brand new, uh, it was already, already talked about. It was also in the Bloc Québécois platform, so okay. it, the Conservatives were, were not alone. And it went back f with the Reform Party. So even with, uh, you know, Preston Manning, he was a big advocate, advocate of having that kind of a position in Parliament. And so it was introduced in uh, C2 yep. uh, to be established in 2008. So Kevin Page, which was the first PBO, uh, started his work in 2008 until 2013. So it's, it's a five-year mandate. And now we have Jean-Denis Fréchette, who's the new PBO. Uh, in the midst of his uh, tenure now. So the model for the Parliamentary Budget Office, or officer, I'm always, I'm always going to get that wrong, is similar to the Congressional Budget Office, which is in the United States. And there's some other budget offices uh, in a couple different countries around the world. Yes. So it's slowly an institution that other countries are developing, just as we've developed. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me how the uh, PBO compares to the Congressional Budget Office in the United States? The mandate of the two uh, institutions are quite similar. So it's to help parliamentarians to help them uh, uh, evaluate the cost of measure that would be tabled within our department or Congress. That's about the only similarity between the two, I would say. Because the uh, um, Congressional Budget Office uh, in the United States uh, was established in uh, 1974 in the wake of the Watergate. Yeah, it was uh, Nixon, yes. Nixon who established So we have that. the sponsorship scandal here in Canada, <laughs> we have the Watergate in, in the US, and we should add also there's the uh, there's an equivalent in Ontario in the wake of this, maybe the scandal of the electricity, uh, we, the, the, what we heard a few years ago. And so it, it seems we need first a scandal, a scandal, and a scandal, and a minority government. Those are the two things to It helps drive a little more accountability into the institutions yes, of the yes, government. Yes, exactly. So a much older institution and much bigger institution. So the PBO here in Canada is about 15, at best 15 employees working okay. for, the, for, for the PBO. Uh, in the U.S. is 250 uh, employees there, so already you see the scope. They produce about uh, 2,000 reports per year, so that's our, it's a huge number. Yeah. Here, the PBO is quite active, but we don't get to that number. I would say about 50 reports per year, which okay. is not bad. I would say one per year, yeah, that's, per week, so it's a good... That's very good for 15 people because yes. they're quite extensive reports. Yes, yes, precisely. Uh, but as you see, the, 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 the scope is really not the same. Um, another difference is that uh, in Canada, our institution, the party lines are very important. Uh, while in the U.S., we don't have as strict party lines. So um, the CBO is kind of more independent, if you want. We, it's less used as a partisan piece for debate, although it might be. Uh, we just saw it with the repeal of the Obamacare in the U.S. And so uh, they have their own issue over there also, as we do have here. 
in Canada. Yeah, with that one specifically, it seemed like the Trump administration and the Republicans were trying to push through legislation before getting Congressional Budget Office scores. Yes. Uh, so pushing through legislation before a full picture was available. Yes. Um, but in Canada, the Parliamentary Budget Office doesn't score quite in the same way. They often do reports, uh, if I'm not mistaken, either prompted by committees or by parliamentarians. And right now they can sort of study whatever they want. They're, they're given yes. a, a great degree of latitude. Yes, and so there were major files like the FF-35, uh, the uh, aircraft uh, for the army. Yeah, the F-35s. Uh, was, was very important. So that's kind of one topic that the uh, former PBO decided to investigate without being directed to do so uh, at first, then it was. Yeah, the F-35s and then the Truth and Sentencing Act were mm -hmm. two sort of landmark uh, legislation uh, reviews, but more in terms of the side of the Parliamentary Budget Office. I think they were sort of uh, critical in helping to establish the Parliamentary Budget Office and like get its reputation and sort of it defining itself and how like fiercely independent it is today. And, and, and here the point is, is interesting. They kind of look at what was done in the U.S. And so uh, when you say before, what's kind of the similarity and differences? Uh, the PBO did seek a lot of advice on the international scene. And of course, they went to, to the U.S. because it's kind of a more, more established institution. And one thing they told uh, Kevin Page at the time was that you should publish everything you do quite rapidly. And that goes counter to what we are used to do here in Parliament, main, saying that uh, we wait, we have a report, we will show it to parliamentarian or to committee, and once it's approved, then we will publish it. And so we are much more cautious, we take much more time. So Kevin Page came in and kind of shaken things, and that was kind of a steer. Um, he wanted to do things differently. Yeah. Uh, some were for, some were against. Um, Personally, I'm not against innovation. Uh, Parliament is kind of deficient at some time, and maybe new new method could be a good thing to shake up things a bit and, and then go forth. So in terms of shaking things up, let's, let's bounce back to C44 and the Budget okay. Implementation Act. Yes. Um, so the Liberals have promised, the Liberal government has sort of come in on the promise of reforming the Parliamentary Budget Office a little bit. And they've made some promises in regards to increasing the independence of yes. the Parliamentary Budget Office, but it hasn't been all that well received. Some elements have been well received, sort of mixed reviews, and then there have been a lot of elements in uh, C44 that I think the economist community and people who follow public finance in Canada have spoken out against. So could you walk me through some of the first, less controversial changes that the Liberals are um, introducing? Yes. Uh, one that seems to be unanimous, what I heard, especially on the Hill when I was testifying this week, was that now the PBO would be an independent agent of parliament or official. We're not sure what word to use, either agent or officer. Uh, and so he wouldn't report anymore to the librarian. He would set up his own office, uh, have his own power to hire people, to uh, ask for a report, independent report, and that kind of thing, like the Auditor General is doing. So that's a good step, and everybody welcomes that, uh, to have that kind of independence. That stopped there, so <laughs> sadly, because it, what the government did give on one hand, it did take from on the other end. So yeah. uh, he's, the government now asked the PBO to make an annual report 
to table an annual report for the coming year and to have that report approved by the president of both houses, so the House of Commons and the Senate. And so, and it seems that he must, it's not clear, but he should present very in detail what is his work planned and what he intends to do for the next year. Knowing how things could come up quite unexpectedly, it's kind of difficult to anticipate what we will need to do. And so that's kind of a big irritant, is how, how could we first know what we should uh, study. The other thing is the approbation. And so uh, one question that was raised was, well, what happens if presidents or one of the two presidents of the houses don't approve the working plan? Yeah, it's sort of the idea of having the speakers having to sign off on the work plan yes. of the PBO seems a little awkward. It is. Um, because uh, on the one hand, in most cases, I'm sure it would be somewhat of a rubber stamping. but the fact that the rubber stamp has to exist isn't paralleled in any other uh, officer of parliament, like the speakers don't have to sign off on the auditor general's work no. or their work plan. No. And on top of that, the speaker is chosen by the prime minister. So there's this political affiliation that you cannot avoid. And so would that become partisanship, a bit more partisan? And so that was one big concern that I heard often during the testimony this week was, well, how could you make someone independent, but at the same time be part of a partisan battle that could be between one speaker and maybe another speaker, let's yeah. say the Senate, or I don't know. Absolutely. Um, so that's a, that's a big concern. What other, uh, what other changes are introduced in C44 that have been at issue? Um, for me, the biggest issue, because the working report is an issue, is not a major. The major issue is that they take out one provision, which was any parliamentarian could ask directly the, the PBO to make an estimate on the cost of any proposal, not necessarily that has been already tabled in the House or the Senate. And so uh, every topic is out there, as long as it is, it is within the jurisdiction of the, uh, of the Canadian Parliament, yeah. uh, you could ask for an estimate. That is taken out. So now with, with C44, only committees could ask for such, uh, um, um, such uh, estimates. Um, evaluation and um, ordinary uh, MPs would only be able to ask for an estimate for their own bill that they would table, already table within the house. Yeah, for things that they tabled or were about to table. It, it's sort of hazy language that makes it seem like MPs will only be able to ask for PBO help on their own private members' business. So it has already been. Uh, written so they already have kind of an idea what they want to do and also if we go back to our constitution backbencher do not don't have any rights or uh, authority for legislative uh, financial legislation yeah and so yes there are now some procedure that you they could table if they are back sponsored by a member of a government but that is assuming that the government kind of approve already the legislation. So they have already done their work, their homework, and they know what, what to expect. So what's the purpose of asking the PBO? Yeah, so to build on, uh, to build on your point, th point there, which is that in private members' bills, members of parliament are not allowed to uh, introduce legislation, just backbench MPs in their, in their PMBs are not allowed to introduce legislation that has sort of significant costs or direct costs involved. There's sort of tangential costs as there is with any piece of legislation, mm -hmm. and it seems like that is what the PBO would have to focus on. Yes, so what's the point? <laughs> so if you change like the drinking and driving like uh, minimum or something like that, mm -hmm. 
Well, there's no direct cost in that, so that could be done through a PMB, and then I guess PMO, or sorry, uh, the PBO would be limited to only studying sort of the broader costs in terms of policing costs sort of trickle down the line. Yes. So it's not a very direct way of using the PBO. No, and it takes out the main role of uh, MPs, which is to hold government to account. If you want to hold government to account, you take legislation or initiatives that are envisioned by the government and you examine them. And so you don't take your own piece of legislation. You don't want to hold to account yourself. You want to hold to account the government. And so that really takes out the, 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 the meat, if you want, of, of the work of MPs. And so it diminishes again, because we know it has been decreasing over the year, but it diminishes again the role of MPs, and, and, and which is contrary to the spirit of, of having a PBO. And I think one of the other ones that jumped out at me personally, um, there's a great piece in this, I believe it was in McLean's by Jennifer Robson, talking about the political uh, party financing component of it. So I, b I believe the wording in uh, C44 refers to, and it's a little different, uh, as Frechette pointed out, than the Liberal platform, where in the Liberal platform they promised that the Parliamentary Budget Office, or officer, would do costing of political parties platforms but that's not that's not what is in the legislation is it no so that's very interesting so just to make an introduction there is a buzz currently in canada to have free electoral report independently assessed asset uh, not just at the federal level but we see it in some provinces ontario the government must table the pre-electoral budget report before an election quebec is the same thing and New Brunswick did have a piece of legislation where all parties had to submit the platform at the start of the election campaign to have it um, assessed by the library of New Brunswick. It didn't work. They abolished the law, but they just introduced a new piece of legislation. So we'll see how it goes. So yes, you're right. That's a major difference what the intention was during uh, the electoral campaign promised by the Liberals and what they are putting in the legislation. So anyone from a party, an official representative or a party, could ask the PBO to make an estimate on one initiative they are considering to be part of the electoral platform. So it's not the entire platform, it's uh, a voluntary, and uh, they could redraw their demand anytime they want, and so the PBO don't have don't won't produce anything. And they would never be published, it right? It would never be published, and it would be only published if it is part of their platform. So you see, so you as a PBO, yes, it makes my uh, I like it, I will put it. No, but, but then again, it could be good for smaller party that don't have the resources. So up to a point, it could be helpful, but I think the main intention is that. Uh, major party want a third party uh, which has a credibility and a kind of objectivity to kind of rubber stamp their own initiative. So they could go in front of the electorate and say, it's not just me telling you, it's the PBO that validates my... In, in my opinion, so it allows for two things, and uh, Professor Robson makes this point in her piece, is that there would be sort of a level of gamesmanship possibly involved, because the PBO is 15 people. The yes. pre-election period, depending on the writ, so on and so forth, is a couple of months. They say 120 days in One, the legislation, so maximum days. 120, so yes. Which is not a very long time no. to do financial costing no. of major social programs, uh, to use one off the top of my head, 
say the NDP's like ten dollar a day childcare, yes. which is a major major initiative. Uh, this involves in some cases buying statistics and or if not digging them out of different parts of the federal government. Like it's not a very rapid thing to do. Mm-hmm. So the point she makes uh, is that the different parties would involve perhaps in games of flooding the PBO yes. with requests as quick as possible so that the other parties couldn't use it and then use some of them and then withdraw some of them and they'd never see the light of day. Yes. So it sort of uh, seems to me that it puts the PBO in a very awkward position. Yes, how, how does he establish his, his priority? Who comes first? What do I do? Do I go with quantity the more I can? So not those deep uh, issues or do I go with the importance of the, of the topic? So it's, yes, it's, a, it's, it's gonna be, she's gonna be in a very difficult position. So another thing that's come up in the conversation around the PBO is their ability to access information, um, where they get their information from and how they sort of interface with finance and other departments to get the numbers that basically fill out their spreadsheets. Um, so what does C44 change about the PBO's access to information? It doesn't change anything. So we are still out there not knowing exactly what we could do or not do because there's still an issue about what happens if some departments don't want to give the information to the PBO. Uh, should they go to court? So Kevin Page have done that in the past and brought one case in front of the court. And uh, some are saying, well, we should establish that in the legislation and say, well, if uh, departments don't comply, uh, let's go to a federal court and uh, the judge will decide. Now, it's kind of kind of strong. Uh, other officers of parliament don't have that power, and so should we give it to the PBO and not to the others? So uh, there are no agreement on that. And others would say, well, we would prefer to have a consequence. So if you don't comply, it uh, could be an director, uh, administrative uh, executive. Uh, he would have a financial penalty if he doesn't comply to a directive given by the, the PBO. So it's still not clear where to go from that. Um, and personally, I think that the best uh, incentive would be moral support. And so if people in the media, we see that government don't comply, uh, at the end, there will be kind of a moral obligation to do so. Yeah. People will want it. And I think that would probably the, be the more effective way to attain that. Uh, but that takes time. And I have the sense that some would like to see things happening quickly. And so they don't want to ta- wait 10 years before. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. My, my personal take on it is if you're going to use uh, sort of a political capital route, of saying the PBO is going to go to the media and complain. This works on big files. It doesn't work on little files. And perhaps you don't know uh, how significant a little file is going to be until you get the figures that you're looking for. Mm. So if it's sort of one of the government's hallmark promises, then it'll be easier to go to the media and to say, listen, we're not getting what we need. Then if it's on one of you know the other 45 uh, reports produced that year. Yes, and I, I would even be more cynical than you, I think, because just think about the promise on electoral reform <laughs> that the liberals uh, it's always, they, 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 they got rid of, uh, of it. I mean, people, most of Canadians won't decide for which party to vote just on that. Some yeah. will, but it, it, we don't even talk anymore about that. So uh, yes, uh, I agree up to a point also. It's, it's, there is a, some value, but it's kind of also limited. Uh, yes. 
Yeah, I think uh, mentioning the Canadian side of it, I think it's an important thing to note because I don't think many Canadians are actually aware of the PBL. I think in the United States, uh, perhaps because of how long it's been around, that the Congressional Budget Office has a much higher profile. They're cited much more frequently in media, where the PBO is every now and again, and they're not in, they're not in with every piece of legislation, and they're not scoring bills per se. Um, so their reports often don't, their reports are of equal quality, um, but they're often not included in stories as much and they're not quoted in media as much as the Congressional Budget Offices in the United States. Although I would say that uh, journalists know about that, and yeah. so when they see a report, they will pay attention. Uh, Kevin Page was a strong public figure, and so I think just by his personality, he kind of attracted attention, and he was highly popular. I've done a small research looking <laughs> at names of different agents of parliament, yeah. and there was the uh, Auditor General, uh, Mr. Ferguson, he came first. Auditor General are very popular always. Uh, think about uh, Sheila Fraser before. So, yeah. And then second, it was uh, Kevin Page. It was not the language official, for instance, or the Privacy Act uh, Commissioner. And so he was very popular. And Jean-Denis Fréchette, we don't, his name recognition is not that strong. So uh, he's, he's had a public profile that is more... A little lower than Kevin yes, Page was. Yes, exactly. So, but he used that to attract the attention of journalists, and uh, I kind of pleased when I see in the media that some are making reference to the report from the PBO. So, so in the community, yes, it's it's kind of established. But you're right, uh, the population at large. Um, no, we're not that aware of what exactly the PBO is doing and what's the value of it. So you've mentioned the Auditor General. I, I think this is an interesting point to make. Um, I come from a little bit of uh, public safety and a security uh, background. And in, in the conversation around the oversight of our security agencies, there's two words that often are used interchangeably, which is oversight versus review. And oversight is looking into like is looking into security operations, be that CSIS or RCMP, as they happen or before they happen, and when they're in the planning stages. And review is what CERC does, which is the review commission, and they look at it after the fact. They look at all the facts once you know the operations are completed, and at the end of the day, and they do an annual report. This is a little bit like the relationship between the Auditor General and the, uh, the PBO? Yes, exactly. I think you've really give, you did give a very good example. So it's the, the PBO jumps in at the beginning of the process and say, this is what we are forecasting or anticipating. The Auditor General say, this is what happened. And so uh, they both are on financial issues. So they are looking at the same thing, but from different angles. And those who do the function comes from different backgrounds. So a PBO normally would be an economist, a previsionist, previsionist while the uh, auditor general is an accountant. And so their the method of their work method the is also very different. Yeah, so it's sort of like doing economic projections for costing as opposed to going through the books and seeing what costs. And it's different skill sets, I presume. Yes, yes it is. Yes, yes. Um, the other person you mentioned uh, was Kevin Page. Can we talk about Kevin Page for a minute? Sure, yes. Because as you alluded to, he was uh, a very fiery personality mm -hmm. and fairly well known in terms of officers of parliament. I don't think, I don't think there are any others with as high a profile as him or many others with as high a profile of him. Uh, so during his time in the parliamentary budget office, or officer as parliamentary budget officer, I'm never going to get that straight. Um, he often, you know, pushed back on the government and really leveraged the office. 
And what was sort of the public and uh, government reception to Kevin Page? Oh, it was very different. So <laughs> what the public saw was not the same thing as the government saw. It, Kevin Page was a surprise. And so he's a, a public servant, former public servant that worked about, I think it's about 30 years within a central agency. So we're talking about Treasury Board. We're talking about the finance department. He knew very well the process, the budget process, what are the costs, what are estimates, who to connect with, who has the information, what are the documents out there. So he knew very well the machinery of government on that. Um, but he was not perceived as a very outspoken person. He was a public servant. So, you know, in Canada, public servants don't have, um, don't have identity. Yeah. It doesn't exist. You go to parliament, if you testify, you testified for your department. You don't testify on your behalf. And so uh, when he come, start to be vocal and speak out and kind of challenge, because he was also seen as leaning towards conservative. So he was a friend of the conservative. So when he started to speak against the conservative, that was a surprise. And uh, I think he really wanted to go quick and establish uh, the position and make it its own. And so he sought he, he saw to uh, see how things works elsewhere. He got a lot of adv advice. He took a full year to, to think about what should be the method of work to, to use. And then he started to implement what he saw his vision of what should be a, a PBO. And this went contrary to some parliamentary practice, standard practice, where uh, we don't like to be too partisan or do give the appearance of being partisan. Uh, we don't publish report on the web uh, when we want. And so uh, he kind of shake up things. Yeah, he seemed to go ahead and publish reports sort of unexpectedly. Yes. And he set up his own website, Yes, if, if I understand that correctly. And it was a very good website. It's still a very good <laughs> website, I would say. Uh, but he did some innovation. So first of all, he said, OK, government uh, votes on estimates. So estimates are what are the, the budget that the government plans to use during the year. And so what Kevin uh, Page did set up on this website was, well, I'm going to give a, a report progress on where we are during the, the year. So in three, four months, how much money have we really spent on those estimates? Estimates are authorization to spend. So did we use them all or not? Yeah. And where are we? So he put out that on his website. And so that was kind of useful for a parliamentarian. And Strangely, I don't know the story behind that, but uh, I did observe one or two years after that, Treasury Board, the Secretariat uh, Treasury Board, have done the same thing. And so I think uh, Kevin Page kind of set up standard that were followed after that by, by the government. And so now uh, on his website currently, you have a fiscal simulator. So if you want to do your own uh, simulation to say, well, if I increase taxes uh, for a specific group of uh, taxpayer, what will happen? And so you could play with those numbers on this website. So it's kind of interactive, which is interesting. And also another thing, his website uh, with uh, Kevin Page, everything was out there. So every piece of correspondence, every um, uh, money spent, uh, everything was there. And so uh, for Page, the main point was transparency. And for him, because it it's, was the question of building his own credibility. And so you establish your own authority and credibility. If we trust you, we believe in you. And one way to achieve that is to be transparent. So everything is out there. And that's what he's kind of tried to set up. So with the original uh, PBO, as it was, you know, came about from 2006, from the Federal Accountability Act, 
the act wasn't perfect. It, it included its own restrictions um, in terms of like what information they could access. But Page made a pretty good run of things um, in terms of, you know, not bending the rules, but really pushing the boundaries of those restrictions. Um, how much do you see C44 sort of boxing in the PBL? One, yes, a uh, very good question. Uh, one reason why Kevin Page was able to, to do so much was that the wording in the first piece of legislation was the PBO has authority to do analysis on every topic he wanted. That was, it, it was very broad, maybe too broad. Uh, but he, he, he took on the challenge and he said, okay, I will do everything. So I look at macroeconomics, I'll look for the next year, for the next 50 years, I'll look at very specific uh, topic, uh, very broad issues. And so he, he covered a lot of grounds. This new piece of legislation limits. And so they say, no, you have to do only macroeconomic analysis. You don't do, so implying that you don't do any microeconomics. Micro is important. It's a, it's, it's a specific field, field that we, we look, we analyze. So he I'll, was doing that. I'll confess I've never taken an economics no, class. Okay, so, okay, so I won't <laughs> but, but I believe you on this one. I'll take your word but, for it. But, but you see, and so he's kind of limited in what he could do. So he doesn't have any more this broad uh, scope of, of picking what you want to do and so he's kind of limited with estimate cost analysis and some national analysis but uh, yes and so the, yes isn't it we did not improve with this new piece of legislation and then I guess my last question in closing is in, in the United States particularly with the CBO there's some critics who say that the nature of the CBO and how visible it is in terms of legislation sort of overdrives emphasis to the fiscal side of things, to the pricing of programs, as opposed to, in some cases, the social benefit. Um, so where do you think that line is between, like, obviously, um, obviously, significant programs have significant costs. And so is there a component where just talking about the price of every program is sort of detrimental to the pu public interest or... Um, where's the balance to be found there? Uh, yes, I think it's a good point to to raise. Um, it's not just about cost, and so if we if everything goes down to about cost, there's something we're missing. We don't have a lot of tools to look at other things, or if we have the tool, it is very costly, so very yeah. resource intensive, and we did not establish a mechanism to help with that. The Liberal did promise to have a new officer for a scientific uh, research. Um, the uh, chief science officer. Yes, that would be the kind of thing that could bring other aspects within uh, the analysis and say, okay, it's not just about the money, but it's about uh, causes and effect and what we know, what research has already established and uh, advantage and limitation of, of program. Um, that would be interesting. I haven't not heard the liberals talking on that, uh, and I certainly did not hear them saying it would be established within Parliament, the equivalent of a PBO, for instance. Yeah. But that would be a, a way to uh, mitigate a bit this this issue or this overemphasis on on the on cost. Um, but it's not just the PBO or the CBO in the U.S. It's everything within government. Uh, nowadays, gov any government want to show that they are spending money wisely and they all give the impression that they have attained their objective or they have get result by publishing budget and numbers. 
but it's not just about that. So it's not it's not it's a broader problem that we see all across government. Well, thank you very much. Already? Yeah. <laughs> so much it's been uh, a good 30 minutes or so, but thank you, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Big thanks to Geneviève Tellier for uh, that interview. At uh, one point, I, w I was in Seattle when this interview took place, so I could unfortunately not be there. Uh, the one point I had, I had taken away from the changes was that uh, it, they clearly were inspired by the Congressional Budget Office, the, the American one. Um, and it, it strikes me as, because the way that one works is members or representatives or senators will, will submit bills uh, for consideration, and anyone can kind of do that at any time. Uh, and then it will be scored by the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, we have a very different system here where not anyone can just put forward any legislation at any time. So this, this thing where it's if you're only if you're considering legislation instead of using it to scrutinize government spending, which is kind of what the initial point was. It was to give opposition members something like the resources of the civil service to actually do an in-depth analysis. Uh, it seems to me to completely undermine that model and isn't really compatible with a Westminster legislative system at all in that the role of opposition MPs isn't to come up with credible proposals, it's to scrutinize spending and to hold the government to account. So I wanted to just get that on the record, seeing as I couldn't uh, be there for the interview. So there have been a couple developments on the, the PBO file since so, this interview. Yeah, so that, that interview was recorded last Thursday, and today's Monday, um, and there's a... Today's Tuesday. Or Tuesday. Uh, we were supposed to record on Monday. Sorry, folks. Um, but there was an interesting article that came up in iPolitics that was talking about sort of the tension and the blame game uh, in regards to this piece of legislation. And in it, um, Liberal MP Greg Fergus, for somewhere over in Hall Gatnell. Hall Aylmer, yeah. Yeah. Um, is basically quoted from committee calling out PCO officials and laying some degree of blame on them for not consulting properly, yeah. for basically advising or uh, submitting to the prime minister a flawed piece yeah. of legislation. Yeah, so th this was in committee, right? So, yes, So I'm guessing the, the PCO official was testifying before the committee? Correct. So can you read out Fergus's quote here? Um, so Fergus is quoted as saying, quote, Do you feel the PCO as a central agency will make greater efforts in the future when they are drafting legislation that eventually works its way for recommendation to the prime minister and minister of finance? That it... Uh, that it'll take greater care to not only respect the political wishes of government, but also to make sure that they are doing uh, even more due diligence in terms of informal and formal consultation before legislation is proposed. So this to me basically says that like the government, PCO, I'm sorry, PCO just doesn't make minor, like they don't completely get the intent of the bill wrong and then the government like submits it anyway. That just doesn't happen. To me, this is just, they had a bad proposal, they realized the proposal was bad, and now they're just throwing civil servants under the bus, which to me is just incredibly shitty. I think it's very bad for the morale of the people who work for you if your first instinct on get it, making a mistake yourself is to like pitch your, you know, the people who report to you under the bus. I just, I find that that's like really not good. I mean, he's not in government in the sense that he's not a minister, though he is a parliamentary secretary. Um, but, yeah, I, I am not a fan of this approach, personally. I mean, I think it's interesting to sort of see where the players are. So, Greg Fergus, as of the last shuffle, is actually no longer parliamentary secretary. That, oh, okay. That's why he's on committee. That uh, makes more sense. Berating people. 
Um, I, I think it's sort of harassing civil servants. <laughs> Very short pants. Um, it's interesting to sort of lay out where the players are. So what you have here is you have a, I guess now a backbench MP or a member of the finance committee, um, holding public servants to account for a piece of legislation that got political approval and approval through cabinet. Yeah, it's by, not like no one had seen by this before. his government. Yeah. So, like, civil servants are all, are ultimately the people who draft the bill and have huge, huge degree of latitude in what goes into the bill and the final wordings yeah. and are the ones best placed to know how a bill will yeah. materially impact institutions. However, it's ultimately the role of the political masters, that being yeah. the ministers and the cabinet, to do their own due diligence. Yeah. No, honestly, th this is like buying a book thinking it's bad, then writing a sternly worded letter to the ink manufacturer about how the book wasn't up to your standards. I don't think it's quite comparable. If, if, I, if, we're, if we're accepting the premise that this bill is poisoned and it's bad, um, or not, not, well, the this, bill, this not the bill, but this, yeah, this the portion, portion of the bill, um, then I think the blame is actually split between the two. Um, obviously, there's been some sort of failure at the political level to identify... Um, the problems that they their government was going to have with the bill yeah. once they someone clearly didn't understand the full implications of the bill. Um, that being said, you have to wonder whether the public service knew the implications or they just didn't think through it well yeah. enough unless there was some sort of political back and forth where the liberal government had been pushing for well, this. Well, exactly. We don't know if this was like a public service recommendation or if this was their own initiative. I would hazard to guess that this did not come on the public services initiative, though we have no way of knowing. So. I, I would disagree. When when you're putting together a bill, particularly a bill as large as this, an omnibus sure. bill, and you go to the civil service and you say, listen, we want to reform the PBO. Yeah. Um, there, you might have some inklings as political staff. You, you do a couple Google searches, you talk to a couple experts, and you say, all right, here's the direction we want to go in. And if you look at the liberal platform, their direction was making an office of parliament or an officer of parliament. And so that their, their um, recommendation or their advice to the civil service, their direction to the civil service may have been as general as that or nearly as general as that. And then the civil service starts coming back with options. Yeah. And says, here's our recommended options. Yeah. Here here are these things, and here are the purported benefits, and here are the purported cons. Yeah. If that uh, pros and cons calculus was skewed, which does happen, mm -hmm. then it leaves a political staff and ministers and ultimately a government that feels like it was blindsided by its civil service. Sure. So where, and, and that's sort of what you see playing out here, is Fergus sort of being defensive of his government and trying to sort of get to the bottom of, why did you make these stupid recommendations? Yeah. And though, if, though, yeah, I mean, it, presumably he has some idea where these ideas are coming from, but it does seem odd. I mean, anyway, I, I, I don't know how the, this could have gotten fog of war. It just seems like very, very dumb. Like, they were not good changes and they were not well received and it's just been kind of a cluster from day one on that yeah especially with the uh the sensitivities surrounding the institution yeah because it's supposed to be independent and if you make tweaks left and right it 
really isn't good for the institution. It's supposed to be independent. It relates to a tool that the opposition has yes. to hold the government to account, so there's sensitivities there. Yeah. And then also every economist in Canada, as far as I'm aware, <laughs> is at least like, the ones on Twitter, yeah. Is like a cheerleader for the PBO. Yeah. yeah. And so You gotta watch out for the guild, man. It's, it's a, uh it's very much a sacred cow. Yeah. And so sure. if you're going to reform it, this was one to pay attention to and to make sure that you had your ducks in a row. Well, and certainly like, get your stakeholders lined up in advance and like kind of like and have an, an accommodation with the opposition about it. And like just sneaking this into the Budget Implementation Act just seems like the most like backhanded, like so, least accountable. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to attribute malice to the government or to the liberal government's actions here. I have no problem doing that. There, there's sort of this, the old statement of don't attribute to malice what is better explained yes. by ignorance for for listeners that is uh called hanlon's razor hanlon's razor all right. i'll keep that in yes. mind um which i think is like very yeah, usually true, true about yeah. government in general yes that they were like okay we can nail down this election promise yeah hanlon's razor is really the first law of elected politics in general yeah largely like errors happen and they're generally not malice driven yeah that said i think like oh whoops this amendment to a critical institution used by the opposition fell into our budget implementation act on accident is a bit far-fetched but hey you never know weirder things have happened i mean well it's an explanation for what happened i'm not putting it up as a defense i'm I'm not saying this is a legitimate excuse for them to use (laughs) to skirt accountability when legislating i'm saying yeah this is probably what happened we may never know until the tell-all book comes out i guess Looking forward to it. So that'll be it for the boys in short pants. Is, this is week. Jonathan Kay going to pen that tell-all book, or oh, have, have they moved Christ. to different? Let's, let's, no, we're, we're not let's touching not go it. there. No. Uh, thanks for listening to the boys in short pants this week. Uh, apologies for the slight delay. Uh, we'll probably try to have us up soon. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Tonight? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I got some work to do this evening. Anyway, uh, thanks for for listening, everyone. Uh, make sure you, you follow us on Twitter at Short Pants Pod for our takes, good and bad, uh, fair and foul, sweet and salty. Uh, they're all good often salty often salty uh feel free to leave us a review on itunes um sorry uh to the the person who feels that our production quality could be better every every now and again when i'm bored i'll look through uh different podcasts i follow on itunes particularly with an eye to the cbc podcast i try and find ones to be like uh, we have more stars than them and i think we're beating the poll cast i want i really want it to beat tapestry which is in my opinion one of the more useless CBC shows. You would really not like Tapestry. It's it's bad. Or Writers and Company, but unfortunately they're in like the seventy the seventy review range. Oh. So out of striking distance for us right now. But leave us a review. Yeah, for now. The, ne- the next way. year, one year from today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, have a great week.